Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information since 1922. We also receive support from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and the CNPS is working to save and support the communities of plants and related beings and conditions that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. As another offering to all of you in your gardens, tending toward the solstice in just a few weeks on December 21st, this week we're in conversation with award-winning poet and lifelong home gardener Camille Dungy. Camille is the author of four collections of poetry, most recently Trophic Cascade winner of the Colorado Book Award. She is also the author of the essay collection Guidebook to Relative Strangers, Journeys into Race, Motherhood, and History, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. She was a Guggenheim Fellow in 2019, and in 2021, she was awarded the Academy of American Poets Treehouse Climate Action Poetry Prize. Camille is also a university distinguished professor at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. Camille, you and I have been in conversation about your being a guest on Cultivating Place for several years, and so I am just so pleased to be speaking with you right now. Welcome. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. So I I always ask the same question to get people started off with knowing you and me knowing you and kind of contextualizing where our conversation is going to go. If I were to ask you what is an organizing principle uh, around your own relationship with plants and gardens, perhaps right now, in the soil and in poetry also, what would that abstract motivating principle be for you, Camille? Grow life, support beauty, um, encourage interconnected vibrancy. I think that's for me what a, what a garden allows is to support that kind of interconnectivity. And then we get the side benefit of, of beauty lots of different beauty and and surprise and also the other side benefit of health, healthy soil and healthy air and healthy little critters (laughs) and all of those things. And so when you support life and you support diversity, uh, you get lots of, lots of concurrent benefits. I like that. So before we get into you as a uh, a very prolific and lauded and recognized poet, uh, well-deserved, I would love to have you take us back a little bit into your earliest life and and who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a woman for whom gardens and or relationship with the nature all around us and the plants all around us would be an important aspect of your calling, Camille? 
<laughs> That's a great question. You know, I'm working on finishing up a book right now called Soil, the History of a Black Mother's Garden, uh, in which I spend a lot of time <laughs> thinking about answering that question. Um, and so it's, it, yeah, I think for some people, there's a, there's a singular moment or experience or person. But for me, in, in writing this book, I'm really realizing how much that kind of care for just what I talked about, this, this interconnectivity and supporting life and vibrancy, how many places in my life I saw it. But I, I can say that my parents are gardeners also. And uh, so I've always grown up in a home where there were there were flowers and and uh, carefully selected trees and my father's tomatoes this year were insane. They just gave and gave and gave and gave. It was it was a delight to live near him this year because <laughs> I had so many tomatoes um, to to play with in the kitchen. And so, and I remember going to college and, and really that may have been one of the first times that I, I had to eat like a store-bought tomato. And I was like, what, what is this? <laughs> this, this is not, a, this is not a tomato. <laughs> right. And I, I remember I had this huge argument with one of my friends in college about whether her father's tomatoes were better or, or mine. <laughs> her father was a grower right that they lived in um woodland and the central valley cal you know like like he grew tomatoes and i was like my dad's garden tomatoes are better i was a, it was a, like a really snotty kind of conversation but i still remember that kind of differentiation between what it means to be a large-scale farmer and what it means to mm. to just have a, a backyard plots and understanding early that what we do in our own backyards mm. can really can really matter can make a difference and can and create a, like just really key sustenance also yeah so you were born and raised in Colorado is that right no, I lived in Colorado just long enough to avoid that Californian go home stigma when Californians <laughs> moved to Colorado. <laughs> Good. Um, so I moved to California when I was a toddler and uh, grew up in Southern California. And then when I was in high school, my father got a job at the University of Iowa. So I left and moved to Iowa for high school. And that was good. Wow. And it was important to see another part of the world. But then I went just racing back to California for college and did that. And then I, I spent about a decade on the East Coast, uh, Southeast and Northeast. And that was also important to live in a different landscape. You know, yeah. it's just, it, it's a different cultural landscape. It's a different, the, the air feels different. The, the sky looks different. The plants that can grow there are different. And of course, the history and the culture are different in many ways than the American West. And then again, I boomeranged back to California. I lived in Northern California for about six years. And now I've been here in Colorado for eight years. Yeah. So, which is 
which is the longest I've lived in any one place since I was a child. And so I feel, I feel like I'm, I'm rooting in now. Like I, I really have landed again in a place I'm, I'm happy to call home for a while. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, one of the things I think, especially as gardeners and that we're going to move into you as a gardener, but one of the things about living in different places is that as you begin, if you are able to garden in each new place that you're in, you know them differently by just, as you said, the soil, the light, the, the climate and how it moves and changes. And, um, and it's an intimacy that gives you all kinds of different information, you know, depending on where you live. When did gardening first become something that you began to identify uh, with as an adult, not just being the beneficiary of um, your father's love, or maybe, I don't know if your, your mother grew anything different, but when did it become part of your identity? I think uh, gardening in the way that we conventionally think about it requires some kind of property, right? Uh, it, you can have container gardens in, in apartments, but if you're moving your apartment very, very frequently, that can be tedious also yeah. moving all those pots. And so I think that when I moved here was when the gardening outside started to become a thing for me. Yeah. I have many, many plants inside my house. And so I have always had that kind of indoor gardening thing, but I don't think that that's what people are usually talking about when they're talking about gardening is, is the houseplant collection. I think they're usually talking about what you grow outside, uh, either vegetables or or flowers and things. And so really, I think the, the honest answer would be when I moved here to Colorado, where we had our own home and our own soil and could make our own decisions and could stay long enough for the three-year cycle to see what you put in grow to maturity. Yep. Because that's the other thing about a lot of types of gardening is it it's not fast. Mm -hmm it requires a kind of patience to wait through a number of seasons for those perennials to really take hold and do yeah. their thing. Yeah. It's definitely a partnership or a relationship built on time. Yeah. So with that, I would love to have you read, we could start with Trophic Cascade and then move into that collection. I would be happy to do that. I think for me, one of the things that, that'll come up here is, is that with all that moving around, I was always very aware of which landscapes were my landscapes and then which landscapes I was visiting. <laughs> and I, I can visit and pass through and learn things from, but that's really different than feeling. I don't know if your listeners um, have these kinds of experiences, but there's just certain places where you just, you can fly over it or drive into it and just breathe better because you feel, oh, this is home. Uh, I have a funny story. I, I find it a funny story about my daughter. She was, she was about five, I think. And we'd spent 10 days 
in Vermont in June and it it rained a lot and we were in the Green Mountains and that is not just a symbolic name. Those mountains are so green, so green. And we were driving out towards the airport and I was thinking, I mean, it's like some sort of technicolor thing. It's really, it's a little oppressive. Like this is what I was thinking in my head as I was driving through all this green. And I, I know that there'll be some people who are like, what are you talking about? But just, it felt almost claustrophobic. And then from the back seat, this little voice says, I am so tired of all of this green. <laughs> <laughs> and then we flew back into the Denver airport and it's June again. So in Colorado, we're just coming out of winter and everything's kind of, um, it's, it's, it's still brown. And she looks out the window and she says, oh, that's so much better. <laughs> <laughs> and if like anybody who is in the West, uh, like is nodding their head right now, if you live in any of the open spaces of the West, like you are used to a little bit of relief from green and you can see horizons in a way that you just can't in the the densely forested northeast. I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, yes. And um, and and there is that sense of, of home. I, I think anybody will recognize that, even if it's not their own home. Like for me, if I pass by a ponderosa pine and I smell like the dry aroma underneath it, like that to me is just a very familiar homing smell. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and everybody has them, they're just all different and born of who knows what, actual experience, epigenetics, stories told to us, I'm not sure, but um, I think we all, yeah. And, and there are deep relations that are built into those. So I love that, that prelude to trophic okay. cascade. All right, right. And that it's just partially to say, like, I'm I'm always thinking about like what makes the landscapes I love, you know, what's 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 what are the kind of yeah. forces, scientific forces and, and all those kinds of things that make the landscapes I love. So now, trophic cascade. After the reintroduction of gray wolves to Yellowstone. And as anticipated, their culling of deer. Trees grew beyond the deer stunt of the mid-century. In their upreach, songbirds nested, who scattered seed for underbrush. And in that cover, worn snowshoe hair. Weasel and water shrew returned, also vole. And came soon hawk and falcon bald eagle, kestrel, and with them hawk shadow, falcon shadow, eagle shade and kestrel shade haunted newly buried runnels where mule deer no longer rummaged, cautious as they were now of being surprised by wolves. Bear, berries brought bear, while undergrowth and willows growing now right down to the river brought beavers who dam. Muskrats came to the dams and tadpoles. 
came to the night song of the fathers of tadpoles. With water striders, the dark gray American dipper bobbed in fresh pools of the river and fish stayed. And the bear who fished also culled deer fawns and to their kill scraps came vulture and coyote, long gone in the region until now. And their scat scattered seed and more trees, brush and berries grew up along the river that had run straight and so flooded, but thus damned, compelled to meander is less prone to overrun. Don't you tell me this is not the same as my story. All this life born from one hungry animal, this whole new landscape, the course of the river changed. I know this. I reintroduced myself to myself, this time a mother, after which nothing was ever the same. Mm. There's just so much life and interconnectedness and interdependence in there. And it's such a hopeful version of what can happen, what, what is possible. And the connection at the end of you uh, becoming a mother paralleled with this other trophic cascade outside of you, but also of you or us is such a powerful personalization of this uh, momentous shift in the ecosystem in Yellowstone that I think a lot of people will have read about. And yet to hear it put in this way with one thing begetting the next thing, and then you, a woman becoming a mother, uh, being the end mark is just is so powerful and moving. Can you talk about the emotion that put you at the end of this vast and reinvigorated ecosystem. Well, when we were talking before, there was this sort of thing you said where you don't know why the ponderosa pine smell has this uh, triggering, positively triggering mm -hmm. thing for you. And, and I guess that's that's what's always important for me in my writing is that I am willing to just stay with something that compels me that I'm interested in and I'm willing to stay in it and write into it and get it as vividly detailed and alive as possible on the page but I have to at some point ask why do I care and what's what's my connection to this? Because it's that moment of what my kind of human heart connection is to this greater than human experience that makes the poem. And so that was it. I just obsessed with this story. I found the story 
fascinating and did all this other research and thought about it, et cetera. And, but then in the end, it was just, why? And, and that was the, oh my goodness, I recognize myself in the landscape. Oh, well, that has to go on the page. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that's it. It's just how none of this matters. I mean, it matters. Obviously, it, it matters for the planet, right? Um, and it matters for our cohabitants on the planet who have no control over the things we are doing to this house, right? Um, we all share but if change is going to happen, if we're going to instill care for people, people have to, to see why it matters and how, how their human life connects. We've done such a good job. The 19th and 20th centuries did such a good job at separating the human from the rest of the world and mm. setting us apart that now what we have to do is undo at least two centuries of hard work of um centering man and and decenter man all over again but but you can't do that without opening up hearts this is Cultivating Place. We're in conversation this week with award-winning poet and lifelong gardener, Camille Dungy, sharing more with us about the interconnection between both. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is proudly made possible by support from the American Horticultural Society. Soon to turn 100 years old and still growing strong, the AHS is committed to integrating science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and the joy that reminds us all of the vibrancy and relevance of gardening in our world. Gift memberships to the AHS make great gifts for gardeners of all levels, ages, locations, and interests. Listeners of Cultivating Place receive a $10 discount on annual individual membership to the Society. For the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head on over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash CP. Cultivating Place is also made possible in part by the California Native Plant Society on a mission to save California's native plants and places using both head and heart. And don't forget the California Native Plant Society's festive winter games, Wreath Masters, is back for season two. Mark your calendars for Thursday, December 16th at 6.30 p.m. Pacific for the virtual awards ceremony and judging festivities with me and Katie of Yothan and Maurice of Bloom and Plume. For all the information and links, visit www.cnps.org forward slash wreathmasters. I'm looking forward to seeing you and all the wreath loveliness then. Hey, it's Jennifer. So I overuse the word powerful, don't I? And you know what? I do, but I don't care. 
that's what we are. We are powerful in the positive or in the negative as gardeners, as humans, no matter if we garden on our windowsills, on our farms, or simply by supporting others who garden and or grow our food or our environment. We must embrace and care for and watch over and wield this power with all of our hearts and all of our mental alacrity. We can make a difference. Which trophic cascades will you and your garden be part of in 2022? The most rejuvenating and connective of ones. That's my hope and prayer for us as gardeners heading into a new cycle around the sun. A very happy, healthy, powerful solstice to each of you. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. Camille Dungy is a nationally award-winning poet. She's the author of several anthologies and collections of poems, including her most recent, Trophic Cascade. As we come back to our conversation, Camille talks more about the concept of trophic cascades and reads another, earlier poem, The Blue, in which a different kind of cause and effect is explored. The blue refers, on one level, to a small native blue butterfly of the central coast of California. I probably wrote the poem Trophic Cascade um, either 2010 or 2011, so it would have been, I mean, she would have been nursing still, which is a whole nother level of of hungry animal. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, an awareness of, uh, oh, oh, look, I am a mammal (laughs) with like a feral creature dependent upon me. Yes. (laughs) Demanding me. Yes. Um, yes. God love her. So yeah, 2010 or 2011. Maybe you would read the blue because I think it is such a, a comparison to a different trophic cascade. Sure. Okay. I moved back to San Francisco and, um, I've been living again, like I said, in the East for 11 years and I was back in my favorite landscape and, um, and I had this great apartment in the mission. It was wonderful and had windows and I could see everything. Um, but I partially took the apartment because it had a, a fantastic walk-in closet that I made my, my study because I realized that I would, I would never, I would never get any writing done if I, I would just look out the window all the time and so, <laughs> <laughs> or I would just want to be out there. And so I had my, you know, my hours where I wrote and it was, I, I, I moved to San Francisco, went into the closet and got the writing done. So I, I know that that was happening. And, and what's interesting about that to me is that so many of the poems I wrote in that closet really vividly descriptive of landscapes. And so, um, I forced myself in a sense, I'd been away from this landscape I loved and wrote about it while I was away from it, but now I was back in it, but I forced myself to be deprived of it still so that I could still really work on my, my imaginative language of how I describe these spaces. So, um, and it was in, um, maybe read the title of the collection it is from. It's from a collection called 
called Smith Bloom, and uh, which which takes the apostrophes out. Uh, pro tip: If you're ever looking at creating a title for a book, you don't want apostrophes um, or really hyphens, if possible. People don't know where to how to how to put them, and so your thing gets titled wrong all the time. Um, so it removes the. Um, it removes the apostrophe, but it also allows for some play that there's the Smith blue butterfly, which is going to be talked about in this poem, but it also some play on like smithing the blues or, 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 or like making the blueness. And so much of this collection deals with environmental degradation and loss that um, how do we as humans make our own blues, right? Create these, these, um spaces that require our morning songs so the other thing that you may need to know about this poem is um it's set uh part of it is set on the central california coast um both around big sur um there's there's actually a, a creek that's named in here that what was that 2017 or 2018, it got really famous because there was a major fire in the Big Sur area called the Dolan Fire um, that happened in, in just this area that I'm describing in this poem. And another area called Half Moon Bay, which is famous among other things for this big wave called Mavericks. There's a big wave surfing contest. But occasionally in Half Moon Bay, there are other big waves that will just come out of nowhere. Um, and they're called sneaker, sneaker waves. And you have to be really careful when you are around the shore and the cliffs in, in that part of the coast because it's uh, highly unpredictable. So those are background pieces of information that just as you listen will help contextualize what's happening. The blue. One will live to see the caterpillar rut everything they walk on. Sea cliff buckwheat cleared, relentless ice plant to replace it. The wild fields bisected by the scenic highway, canyons covered with cul-de-sacs, gas stations, comfortable homes, the whole habitat along this coastal stretch endangered, everything, everyone, everywhere in it in danger as well. But now they're logging the one stilling hawk Smith sights, the conspiring grasses shh, 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 the Coryopsis Matoni's boot barely spares and netted, a solitary blue butterfly. Smith ahead of him chasing the stream, Matoni wonders if he plans to swim again. Just like that, the spell breaks. It's years later, Matoni lecturing on his struggling butterfly. How fragile. If his daughter spooled out the fabric she's chosen for her wedding gown, raw taffeta burled a bright-hued tan, perhaps Matoni would remember how the dunes looked from a distance. The fabric balanced between her arms, making valleys in the valley, the fan above her mimicking the breeze. He and his friend loved 
everything softly undulating under the coyest wind. And the rough truth as they walked through the land scratch and scrabble and no one was there then besides Matoni and his friend walking along Dolan's Creek in that part of California they hated to share. The ocean a mile or so off, anything but passive. So that even there in the canyon, they sometimes heard it smack and pull well-braced rocks. The breeze, basic, salty, bitter, sour, sweet. Smith trying to identify the scent, tearing leaves of manzanita, yelling, this is it here, this is it his hand to his nose, his eyes having finally seen the source of his pleasure alive. In the lab, after the accident, he remembered it, the butterfly. How good a swimmer Smith had been, how rough the currents there at Half Moon Bay his friend alone with reel and rod, Matoni back at school early that year, his summer finished too soon. Then all of them together in the sneaker wave. And before that, the ridge, congregations of pinking blossoms and one of them bowing, scaring up the living, the frail and flighty beast too beautiful to never be pinned. Those nights Matoni worked without his friend, he remembered too. He called the butterfly Smith's Blue. Hmm. Maybe talk a little bit about um, the, the story of the, the butterfly in our popular imagination yeah. Uh, before we move into the personalization of it here and, and who these two men were. Yeah, the butterfly, uh, the caterpillar at the very beginning um, mm. of the poem is a capital C caterpillar. One of them will live to see the caterpillar rut everything. Um, that's the capital C TM caterpillar. And the way that so many of our landscapes um, are destroyed and the, the ways that we like um, hmm, use these words um, for uh, their opposite <laughs> purposes uh -huh. um, is, is always, interesting to me and, and important to, to play with and point out. Um, so because of development and change and, and, and like habitat encroachment and things, so many different kinds of, of um, invertebrate creatures, all kinds of creatures, of course, but, but in this case, I'm, I'm really thinking about invertebrates, uh, butterflies and things that don't have much range, right? That there's so many, there's so many animals in this world whose ranges are like 200 yards from from their nest is is a like a journey to the to to 
Easter Island for them, you know, right, I mean, just like, right. it just doesn't such small spaces. And so when you come through with a caterpillar or a bulldozer, et cetera, in these spaces and, and make breaks between sections of particular plants, when you, when you remove plants um, or, or other kinds of parts of the ecosystem chains, we do such damage like we can't even see because these creatures are so small like we can't even see the damage that we're doing and so that this particular butterfly is one of many many butterflies in the U.S. and in California in in this case that are are endangered before they're even identified right (laughs) Right? right like before we even describe them and name them and, and include them in our, in our scientific records. We let alone our poetry, let alone our poetry. Yeah. Yeah, We've already destroyed their habitats to such a degree that their persistence is precarious. And so in this poem, I'm thinking about these two young uh, entomologists, Claude Smith and, and uh, his partner, Robert Matoni. And for them too, before, before Claude Smith was out of school, was able to really be what, by all accounts, the amazing entomologist he was going to be, actually was like, like apparently in line to take over the position, at, uh, a key position at the Cal Academy of Sciences. Um, he was hot stuff, and then he got caught in the sneaker wave and was gone. And so this kind of, again before things can even grow into their fruition, they're, they're gone. Um, and in this case, Matoni's still there to memorialize his friend in the name of the butterfly. This is Cultivating Place. We're in conversation this week with award-winning poet and lifelong gardener, Camille Dungy, who is sharing more with us about the interconnection between poetry, gardening, motherhood, and life. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So in thinking out loud this week, I would love to invite some feedback from all of you. Feedback to help me grow and prepare for the next season of growth here at Cultivating Place. No matter if you're a donor And if you are, thank you. I could not do this work without your support. Or a regular listener or an intermittent listener. I could use your help with these questions. Number one, where do you live and how do you describe yourself as a gardener? Number two, what are your top three favorite episodes of Cultivating Place in this last year? Three, What kinds of Cultivating Place episodes resonate with you and are the kinds of episodes you'd like to hear more of? Four, what kinds of conversations are the least compelling to you and you would like to hear less of these? Five, if you think it would be a good fit, would you like to help introduce Cultivating Place to your local public radio station? And six, Do you have any other thoughts on the program you'd like to share? If you have the time and the inclination to answer these questions, please send your answers to me, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. 
for everyone that submits answers or even writes in without all the answers between now and 12:31:21 you will be entered into a new year's day drawing for a signed set of both of my books the earth in her hands and under western skies to be sent to whomever you would like within the continental US that's right right in between now and new year's eve answering these questions or not and your name will be entered into the drawing the winners will be announced on instagram and in the first week of cultivating place in 2022 thank you in advance for your help i look forward to reading your answers I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. Camille Dungey is a nationally award-winning poet and the author of several anthologies and collections including her most recent Trophic Cascade. As we come back to our conversation, we talk about hope and Camille's fierce reasoning behind why we all need to hold on to it. One of the things that really also came home to me in reading this poem is the up and down of this trophic cascade or or set of connections because i think they this was like 1938 i think that the the two young men found is that right and then one of them went on to actually describe it in the 50 i mean matoni went on to describe it Much in the 50s later mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. in mid 50s and it then birthed this awareness uh if only you know i i don't think it's temporary but it, an awareness about the decline of this butterfly and a big um campaign to get people to recognize this butterfly and then work to save it through their gardens through their mm-hmm. planting through their habitat restoration because it had you know been destroyed by caterpillar with a capital c tm terrible euphemism appropriation of one word for another and that helped to birth the Xerces society which is named for another small blue butterfly native to California that actually did go extinct in the 1940s it was the first butterfly known to have gone extinct due to human impact this poem the blue it it again places these two humans in this position of this is real this is also us it is not just right. a little tiny caterpillar against a big yellow tractor um it is our lives what are we going to do about it right and it's all connected right i i, I believe that, that that particular butterfly was dependent on that pinking blossom like the buckwheat it was, dependent on one yeah, particular the, buckwheat the sea cliff so buckwheat, when that buckwheat yeah. goes right Right. So when the sea cliff buckwheat goes and it's like the sea cliff buckwheat had not been a plant as with many native plants, it had not been a plant that was valued. Right. And so we clear that and then you put in roses or whatever it is that you're going to put in. Um, But the removal of native plants is also so key to um, the, the collapses of, of bird and invertebrate communities. And so like, for me, one of the most thrilling things is being, being here, um, really becoming a serious gardener in, in a time when there's so much more widespread conversation about the importance of, of native gardening, um, which is, which is just 
it's fun. I have to say native gardening is fun. It's fun to find, mm-hmm. like it becomes more of a, um, like a little bit of a treasure hunt, finding the, 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 um, the stores and the, the, the catalogs and the, the nurseries, um, and the friends where you can, uh, access these plants. And also I live in, um, uh, well, it's snowing right now. Zone four. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm okay. five. I'm five AB. It can be a temperamental climate. Let's just say, you know, having spent so much time in Southern California, which is like uh, about as close to the Garden of Eden as you can get, um, <laughs> l- learning how to garden in a place where it it can it can snow in June if it feels like it, and it can snow again in September. Um, I have found that the native plants are like, oh look at that, it's a little snow, and then they just like dust off their shoulders and they keep going. Whereas the um, the imported plants and things like that, particularly the Mediterranean plants, which which we we love in American gardens. We love our Mediterranean plants and our Caribbean plants, right? But like you can't have tropical plants outside here. Um, so I have learned there these just this they like have this thing called um, well, it's it's common name is gay flower gay flower, but it's uh, liatris gay feather, right? Feather, it's liatris, gay feather? I think is it's yeah. Um, yeah, and it's flowering out there right now, like it's snowing, and the and it's like, look at me, I look like a boa, and I'm so pretty, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and, so and she is right, and she also is that I love pretty. Seeing yeah, the little pollinators that come to her, right, and um, and that kind of connection to me thinking as a poet um, and then as a gardener and as like, I guess it's a little bit of an ethicist, right? Like it's like thinking about the ethics of, of what we grow and how we grow it and how all of what you're saying, all that, like step by step by step, those kinds of things that we do that feel really individual and personal and like the the connection and the, just the friendship between Matoni and Smith to me in reading that story, like that's almost the most important thing about this poem is the friendship between those two men. Um, like we get to have lives, like we can, we can have lives and we can have joy and memories, even as we're doing this conservation work. And even as we're doing this, this hard work that is being environmentally active in this moment. Well, and I'm thinking, you know, as, as you were describing that and that importance of the friendship, and then you talking about the 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 like really amazing moment we're at right now in horticulture, where we do have these pathways for really positive agency of knowing native plants, of understanding some of their relationships, of, you know, knowing a specialist versus a generalist so that you plant the right thing so that you get beauty and they get food and and it's this beautiful purpose. And you can make a difference with your garden and with how you care for the landscape uh, wherever you might be. And you, you described early in the conversation this importance of what a great job we as a human species did, and that's a very kind way to look at it, extracting ourselves from the natural world and our, you know, necessary survival within it, like it being a constant battle, like we did a great job extracting ourselves from that. 
And now that we see the negative consequences of that as well, which are looming and many and terrifying, um, we begin this process of reintegration and that use of words and that way, like the way you use words to help us re-see how reintegration is possible is part of the reintegration. And I don't, there's something just really full circle about that that is so resonant of, you know, creation stories. Like you use words to create what what you see and how you see them. And it's in changing our language in many ways that we also change our perspective and maybe change our position in this trophic cascade and whatever its eventuality is going to be. Without a doubt, language... Uh, language is how we how we create meaning right I mean and so that's that's like you say that and it almost abstracts what that actually means but language our words tell us our memories they tell us our history they contextualize us in place this becomes most clear to me when I think about other languages, right? The, 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 those ways in which there's no way to say this idea. There is no way to say this idea in another language, uh, right? Like a certain, that, that there's um, a way of being that is sometimes untranslatable if we move from language to language. And so if that is true, as it often is true, that means that our entire ethical system, our, um, our ideas about culture, our ideas about hierarchy and power, about care, attention, all of those things are carried in language. And as a poet then, because poets operate in this space, what I call the paralogical. So there's this logical track that our, that our thoughts run on and poetry runs just par- parallel to that track, mm, but, it, yeah. but it's, it's its own track also. And so it expands our way of understanding the world because poetry is already doing that. And it feels like the perfect medium to to essentially say things that can't be said just through English, right? That to say things because poetry engages our other sensorial uh, experiences of the world. And so we can smell things or feel things and we have a little synesthetic experience um, as we as we move through a, a well-written poem. Um, that allow us to understand differently. And when we understand differently, we act differently. Yes. And I would say, like, as you're speaking about that, I sort of feel like, therefore, poetry is the exact right language for the garden, because the garden does all of those same things as well, if we are engaged in it in its fullest capacity. Like, it holds meaning, it holds narrative, it holds memory, it holds all of those paradigms for better or worse. And so... I will come back around to you as not only a poet, but as a gardener and a natural historian in many ways with your poetry. At what point 
was the natural world or plants or your garden and growing relationships, was it always an integral part of your poetry? And at what point did you, as an intellect, understand that that's what was happening and therefore leverage it to its greatest, again, capacity? Jennifer, that's an amazing question. Um, I, I think it was always there. My home in Southern California was was directly on an ecotone line, you know. So the, when I learned that 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 um, the term ecotone, which is that this line, the space where two different ecosystems merge. So you can you could think of of the ecotone as the the meadow between forest and and field, or or the the title uh, the title range of the beach uh, where you get you know it's there's cliff and then there's this tidal range of the beach and then there's the ocean. So it's that that inner inner space and our house when I was growing up um, was the last was the last on a set of terraced um, streets and so our front yard was suburban Southern California and our backyard was a um, a man a human landscaped hill cliff and then a culvert and then just the wild world right and so to me, I could, I could turn my head in one direction and see this, this human built environment. And I could turn my head in another direction, put my body in a different direction and be in a space that was wholly uncultivated by man. And, and that was me from age five on. Right. And so I think I've always understood and, and it's probably partially why I, like this native gardening thing is fine with me because it was I, I loved the backyard. I loved what happened out there and the things that grew and the play. Oh, my goodness. There's nothing like a wildflower. There really is nothing like a wildflower for beauty. Now, they're often much shorter lived and um, uh, they, they get like rangy and weird and they have like bizarre seed pod situations and things like that. And so I understand why somebody who wants a kind of orderly garden might not want a bunch of wildflowers in it, but I am not a particularly orderly person. And so I like that, that rambunctiousness essentially that happens. So I think I've always been aware of that. I've always been aware of that beauty. I always wrote it, but I don't think I consciously was like, I'm a nature writer um, because I was just writing what I saw. Uh, that's all. I was just writing what I saw. And then, um, and then honestly, I think it was partially because I began to see the, the absence of black writers in the environmental uh, canon at all. And particularly in the, in the um, nature poetry canon, that's when I began to consciously realize like, oh, wait, what I'm doing I, this is what I'm doing, and this is an important thing I'm doing, and I and I really need to to name it um, and um, create a space where where this where this becomes normative, right? And so in 2009, I published Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry, where I was like, look, I am not in fact alone. It's just right. <laughs> it's just that that people haven't been. Um, 
people haven't been expecting to see this. It's just like these little butterflies, right? They they don't know what people aren't looking for black writers. Right. They haven't writing, been recognized haven't been, yes. and haven't been recognized, but you know, so it's, um, uh, ways of correcting that systemic, um, lack of recognition. Um, and so that, I think that was about when, about the early 2000s, when I just began to, uh, to like almost be political um, about the, my positioning um, in this, in the same way that that, that um, environmentals of color uh, now are really doing the same thing and saying like, you just, you cannot erase 60% of the planets of the, the human planet in these conversations uh, about, about environmental justice um, and, and, um, and preservation. It's the same thing that I was also doing with um, the, my poetry and the poetries of, of other um, writers of color and just saying that these, these perspectives, um, these answers, these descriptions, these ways of seeing and being, need to be part of the conversation. Yeah. And for me, there is this incredible moment right now where we are finally getting this greater conversation and greater representation in this conversation, both in words and in gardening, to be honest, and in horticulture, which has long also not been um, anything close to fully, you know, and it's not yet, but it's getting there. Like we're finally at this place where we're getting a confluence of more voices, more recognition and more coming together that I have to hope will also benefit these, um, conversations of, of what we do as humans, not only to each other, but to this home and our planet mates. Um, as a mother, human, black woman, gardener, poet, do you see hope in this moment? Do you, uh, yeah, where do you stand right now in where we are as a species, Camille? On Instagram today, the place where all great scholars go to find out the truth. <laughs> um, I saw a picture from Lake Merritt in Oakland. It was like a, a little bit of graffiti um, in Lake Merritt that said, to lose hope is to lose. And I was like, yeah, I mean, the graffiti speaks truth right? To lose hope is to lose. Of course I have. I, I, I have a child. I can't give up hope. I can't give up on her future that, you know? And so I, I have to fight. I have to fight for her future and for the future of um, uh, all, all young people, my own future too. I mean, I, I, I want to, I want to be here living and breathing and thriving in in 40 years and um and to prove that UN climate watch wrong like what I want my 90s to look like is not what that sounds like <laughs> so 
I'd love to end by having you read a poem that illustrates something about this exact kind of wonder and its surprise and, of course, its presence in our garden lives, right? I think you've chosen a clearing from your upcoming collection, Soil, the History of a Black Mother's Garden. A clearing. All night, the wind blows, and my mind, my mind is like the crab apple that loses limbs. They litter the gram, crush the black-eyed Susan, scatter buds over rows of lettuce, bean sprouts whose fresh greens are clusters of worry in raised beds. Blown leaves and cracked limbs threaten the foundation. Water backs up in gutters, seeps into the house's walls. But my mind is not in the house. In the yard's far corner, the eye of my mind rests on the crab apple, shaken, snapping, hectic, then still. The day dawns without anger. The blue jay I've looked for pushes sky off his crest. How splendid, his wings and tail. It's not so much that before this he'd hidden him. It's not so much that before this he'd hidden himself. It's only he favored a branch I could not see until the storm thinned the tree. Beautiful. Thank you so much for showing up for this fight and your actions of faith in the form of being a human and mothering and gardening and growing and bringing us the poetry that pulls all of that together. Camille, it has been such an honor to speak with you today. Thank you for having me. You're gonna make me cry, Camille. Oh! Yeah. Camille Dungy is an award-winning poet and lifelong home gardener. She's the author of four collections of poetry, most recently, Trophic Cascade. My conversation with Camille was longer than I could fit into our one-hour on-air time frame. So please, check out this week's podcast version of Cultivating Place at cultivatingplace.com under the podcast tab to hear the full conversation, including Camille reading a poem to be included in her upcoming collection of garden-based poems entitled Soil, the history of a black mother's garden. Join us again next week when we here in the Northern Hemisphere continue our garden preparations for the solstice and winter's dormancy in conversation with Devora Browse, gardener and herbalist, talking with us about the sacred in our garden cycles and the concept of the sabbatical or periods of much needed and healthy rest. Listen in. 
Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com and by partner support from the California Native Plant Society and the American Horticultural Society. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We are grateful for tech and web support as well from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.